I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. If you want to know what's going on in IoT, in auto ID, if you want to know about digital to physical convergence, one of the best places to go is the Oban RFID Lab. This organization is at the center of everything, of the major users, of the major suppliers. They're connected operationally. They're doing the research. So I was delighted when Justin Patton, who's the director that uh, was a founder uh, and and still runs the, the lab, agreed to spend time with us do listen to this conversation. He's a fascinating guy who's got amazing insight of tags that are going into space with NASA and underwater onto oysters. So it's all here in this conversation. Uh, take a listen to my conversation with Justin Patton. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williard. Intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. Justin, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, I, I was really fascinated when I first learned about the work that your lab is doing, and I think it's really uh, uh, you know important. And um, uh, I was pleased that you were willing to come and talk to us. So um, maybe we should just start off and talk about. Uh, um, uh, what what you do, what your team does at Oban and uh, the, the RFID lab. Uh, can you kick us off with that? Sure. So uh, we've been doing this for about 17 years now, and we focus on uh, a business case and business value of uh, serialized identification technologies. Um, it sounds so dull when you say it, but uh, uh, truly it's uh, more focused on anything that we can do, whether it's RFID, and there's hundreds of kinds of RFID systems, or even a lot of stuff with, you know, QR and serialization systems um, to um, uh, help establish why you would want to use one of these technologies to help any industry. We focus very heavily in retail and aviation, uh, a lot in food, a little bit in pharma. Um, So um, we use students from engineering, business, human sciences, animal science across the board, and they focus on research projects, whether it's doing feasibility testing and some hard research on like what kinds of uh, items work on what tags with physics and things like that, uh, all the way down to helping establish uh, uh, pilots and uh, uh, metrics for um, sales lift or business case or business value. So it's really a, a, a kind of a business development lab, except it's a, a bootstrap. One of the things I'm really proud of is 
every person who works at the lab, and there's uh, uh, four of us that are full-time, and then there's right now 110 student positions. Uh, all of us were students whenever we started, right? So this is really kind of the inmates running the asylum down there. So we leverage faculty and resources and stuff across campus, but this is a way that the students can work with industry partners and do real projects so that they're developing a space so that when they graduate, the slip gear between the speed of academia and the business world is not always a smooth transition and hopefully make it easier for them to uh, uh, jump out into the job world and make a difference when they get out of here. So much to talk about. These 110 students, how much time are they putting in, into this? This is not full time. They're, they're still pursuing their academic studies. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, undergrads usually work about 15 hours a week or so. Uh, grad students, if they're on a, a research assistantship or something like that, uh, typically it's about 15 to 20. PhD students tend to put in a little bit more time because the research is their, their focus, right? So um, and the PhD students tend to work on things like the robotics and automation teams because they're developing like bigger, more engaged things. Um, but yeah, most of them are, are part time. And sometimes in the summertime, they'll come on kind of uh, full time if they're not out there on an on a internship or something like that. So uh, it's very challenging trying to run a workforce where everyone is part time and you don't control their schedules because they all have classes. So it's uh, it's very we've learned to embrace the chaos over the years, I guess. And what's the secret? How do you do that? Just relax. I mean, like, <laughs> man, I'm not going to lie, Steve. I'm the worst manager you'll ever meet. I'm terrible. In the first five years, I was really horrible. I, every student you talked to back then, they would hate me because I would just micromanage and stress out and focus on all this stuff. And, you know, it was such a, I feel like we got to go, go, go. But I was younger then, too, because I was a grad student. And, and it all seems so important when you're in your 20s, right? So, um, and it's not that it's not now, but look, the world doesn't end very often. So, you know, you have a little bit of time to make mistakes. And I also learned that they don't learn anything unless they mess up a project. They can do five good projects and yeah, they all get gold stars and it's great. And then they go out there in the real world and fall on their face. But if they totally torpedo a project down at the lab, they learn. <laughs> so, um, I think that, uh, there's an age and a time that we focus on, especially people in their, in their youth in college that there's more leeway for mistakes and experimentation. And we learn to, uh, um, you know, relax and, and not take it all so seriously, I think. Isn't that so, that's so true? When we interview people to hire them, we're all focused on their success and they paint this picture like they never failed. But the reality is you can be part of a really successful company or academic team and you can be unconsciously competent. You can uh, be lucky, uh, but you you know when you failed, then you you see the consequences of doing the wrong thing, and those are like great learning experiences. We should, I think, when we interview people, we need to get them to talk about their failures as much as their successes. But you, I don't know how you, realistic that is. We do that, no? Like when we interview students and stuff when they come in, is we ask them like, "What's the worst you've ever screwed up a project in a?" If they don't know, they haven't been there yet, right? So you want to give them a little time. But uh, I, it, it is true. It is, uh, it is what do you take away from it? And, you know, just there's one thing you can't teach, and it's motivation, right? You can teach anything else. I don't care what they know when they come in, especially because we're in college. So, um, but if they're motivated and they want to get on it, even when they mess up, 
And sometimes a motivated student can mess up big because they can go broad with a, a mistake. But uh, that's great. You know, that's something that they pick up and, and learn from. And we don't do that again, hopefully. So, uh, uh, but anyway, that's life. So, so what is the economic engine for what you do? So you've got a lot of people doing a lot of stuff and uh, it takes some money. Uh, you've got some amazing sponsors. Can you talk a bit about that and, and just sure. talk about your business model? Well, the business model is weird, and you won't find many uh, university research institutes because we're on soft funding, which means that all of the funding that supports the students and the research projects, we, we bring in, right? So, um, and we um, are organized within the university kind of on an institute model, so we, we work with a few different colleges that help to do that. But um, I think the key to our success over this time has been to be on soft funding because if I wasn't, because like if we don't make our budget next year, I don't have a job which is great because if I had tenure and I was, you know, sitting in an office somewhere, I wouldn't be down here, you know, 50, 60 hours a week trying to make sure everything was, was going. So, um, and then our revenue sources, you know, we have some uh, sponsorship revenue. We have an advisory board. We've got a lot of board members that have been with us uh, uh, since almost the very beginning, uh, 17 years ago. And then uh, we have uh, some uh, uh, revenue that comes in from uh, grants and, and uh, a lot of them either private grants or public grants. Um, we have some testing services that we do. We run the ARC program, which helps with inlay performance for passive UHF tags. We run a program called ALEC, which does a kind of validation for a supplier compliance for some retailers and stuff. So um, I think making a healthy mix of uh, grant funding, some services, and then also some uh, a gift funding from a, a networking model. If you can balance that triangle, you will live through times uh, uh, fat and lean. Uh, in, a, in a university environment. And then maintaining that soft funding model has been core to, to us. Um, I think that's the most important thing because uh, you've got to sing for your supper. Uh, so uh, uh, I think it's worked out real well. And, you, and you've got giants sponsoring you, the likes of Walmart, I think, and Target, and I think Avery Dennison, Boeing, companies like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, Delta. Delta put a few million dollars in the year in the lab uh, uh, just before COVID. I hate to go down and start listing sponsors sometimes because I always forget one and it's kind of uh, like doing a thank you list. But uh, uh, we have a lot of we have a, a lot of good sponsors from the beginning, and you, you listed a lot of them out there too. I can tell you in terms of, of research uh, currently, you know, um, we've had some good partnerships with uh, uh, Walmart since the very beginning. Um, that was kind of our, our foundation and impetus. And then we've grown to uh, some other retail areas since there. Um, you know, uh, and we've been able to add a lot of friends, you know, in Target and Lowe's and some of the others that we're working on research with right now. Um, Nike is a good friend of ours. T-Mobile just joined the board. Um, and then in the world of aviation, you know, Delta, especially being this close to Atlanta, they really kind of uh, help set the pace in commercial aviation. Boeing's been a good friend of ours. Airbus, Lockheed, Northrop, we've done projects with. Um, and now moving into uh, uh, NASA, we've got a Space Act agreement, um, Annex signed with them and, and uh, um, some of those partners and things. So it's a good set of strong partners. We find that the end users set the direction, and that's the way it should be. And then the solution providers, you mentioned like Zebra and Avery and SML and mm -hmm. you know Checkpoint and all, all those folks, they kind of tag you they help um, 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 provide the solutions. So what we will try to make sure of, as long as the end users are driving the market, everything's healthy. And when the solution providers start driving, because sometimes that can happen in the standards groups and it gets a little bit off too far to one side, uh, uh, then uh, you can normally bring it back in. But uh, we try to focus on the users and make them happy, and then everything else kind of works its way out. 
So what? why are they investing? How, how did you get hooked up with Walmart? That must have been transformational. Pure luck. Um, so at the time, we were at the University of Arkansas, and um, Walmart in 05 um, started an initiative um, where they wanted to tag uh, everything at the case and pallet level through their full supply chain. And in those days, the thinking was very different. We were looking at this as a transformative supply chain technology, not as item level in, in stores. And um, they started onboarding a few hundred uh, suppliers. They commissioned the, la- the uh, lab to do um, some research. So we did a, the initial out-of-stock study for their business case. And then we educated and onboarded you know, hundreds of uh, suppliers. That was, we're an educational institution. They didn't want to go out there and explain to thousands of suppliers what RFID is and how it works. They, there's a university right there. Hey, university, do it. So we did. And we got, we've been getting lucky for 17 years, man. I mean, every time we, we turn a corner, there's another door and there's somebody else that needs some help. And uh, uh, I feel like uh, we've just been, if there's one thing we're really good at is being in the right place at the right time. But um, uh-huh. that's, uh, that's how. Well, I've agreed with everything that you've said apart from the luck thing. I, I think you make your own luck and there's, uh, so there's a level of unpredictability there and you have to, but you have to recognize the opportunities and place the right bets. So I, I think you've done an amazing job in doing that. Um, so the training that you do, so you're training like Walmart wants to bring on a lot of vendors. So you're providing training courses for them. They, how do they get access to that? That's uh, something they pay for, uh, presumably? Um, not, indirectly, right? So typically in the past, usually the retailers, whether, whatever retailers doing their rollout at the time, um, will like whether it was Dillard's or, you know, uh, Macy's or, or Walmart or Target or whatever, um, we um, will educate them for free for the most part. So um, we do lab tours before COVID. We did lab tours every day, multiple per day. And that's starting to come back a little bit now. Um, and that's just like people walk in the door, what's RDIF? And then you kind of talk them through why serialized inventory matters and show them a lot of demos because it's a big lab. It's about 13,000, 14,000 square feet. And then um, some of them have more technical needs. So we have the big chamber and we run the art program. So they'll come in and say, I need to put an RFID tag on um, a landing gear part. So what kind of tag will work on it? Where do I put it? And then, uh, and it's anything from active to passive to whatever. Uh, and then um, some of them just need help. Like they have a mandate or a, a request, if you will, from a retailer to go out there and do some tagging and they need help with that. So in sometimes we can be a lot more hands-on like right now, we're onboarding about four or 5,000 suppliers from various different projects so then it tends to get a little bit more, um, you know, like through the ALEC program, they have a, a page, web page they have to go through, and it's less direct and hands-on. I don't like it that much. It's more impersonal, but at some point you can't do, you can't speak to 5,000 people individually. So um, we're really trying to learn how to scale, Steve. You know, like we've always been very um, direct connect, um, but I think as this industry scales up, we're learning how to uh, – uh, try to speak with a, a broader voice and not just turn everything into a one-to-one conversation. So do you have like a learning management system, an automated courseware that people go through if they want to get up to speed? Or? I'm taking notes. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> 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 We're learning about learning ourselves. So we uh, we just bought this learning management system. I'm like, what does that do? Uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I, it's, it's so important, this... Um, education piece i I feel like um 
you know, we we need to evangelize, uh, but we the biggest thing is we just need to get everyone on the same page and give them the tools to do this job. I, I feel like this is, uh, you know, it's it's important work, and uh, a, a lot of the, the challenges are just everyone's busy and getting everyone up to speed is is really really hard. So I, I'm well, so glad our paths crossed because for that reason. One of the things y'all you've done really well, and it's been very impressive, uh, especially in the last few years, is like a lot of what we deal with is is fundamentals, and fundamentals aren't sexy, right? So operations. Uh, inventory control. I mean, come on. If you want to bore somebody to death with a PowerPoint slide, go talk to them about their inventory management systems, right? I mean, that's that's what I would put in a movie to be the epitome of a boring business meeting, right? So, um, and when people think about innovation, they're like robots and cloud computing, quantum and blockchain. Give me all that stuff, right? All the buzzwords. Well, talk to me about inventory. So I think one of the things that y'all have done really well at, and we talked about this, you know, the first time we connected too, is... Uh, trying to recapture that spark of excitement and innovation around why or what could we do in this world and not get mired down in the, in the drudgery of, you know, inventory operations as uh, something that somebody has to do, or they just appoint the intern to go figure it out while they go focus on the, the more exciting things. So uh, trying to bring that spark of excitement and innovation uh, back to that space is, as uh, y'all's marketing team has been really stellar. Uh, so that's good. Thanks. I will uh, capture this and play it at, at our next board <laughs> meeting when I'm being lambasted for doing a terrible job of marketing what we did. Um, the um, uh, yeah, I think I was at, I was at NRF uh, National Retail Federation show and they had some great interviews. Uh, CEO of Walmart and CEO of Ralph Lauren. And they asked the CEO of Ralph Lauren about Metaverse and what Ralph Lauren were doing about Metaverse. And I was just, I was like, oh, this will be interesting. This guy, this guy is going to really struggle. And he didn't. He like, here's the, of course it was prepared. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, here are the three things that Ralph Lauren's doing about Metaverse. Uh, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, we need to learn from this. Uh, you know, if we were to ask him about serialization and auto ID, I don't know whether he could have given such a punchy, interesting response. But it, mm -hmm. it's, you know, I think more important, you know, the internet's about to get 100 times bigger, because we're going to connect everything. Uh, you know, we're no longer going to be having odd socks and uh, uh, jackets that get you know, lost in nightclubs, it's all going to be connected. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's going to completely change his business model. He's going to go from uh, one-off transactions to subscription. People are going to subscribe to clothing services because it's all going to be connected. And uh, we need to, you know, I think balance the educating people for the tactical things. Uh, what's a GS1 serial GTIN to thinking about oh, how's my business model going to change when uh, when I can connect um, clothing and food and uh, drugs and uh, all, all these things. You know, the culture leadership's changed, especially in, in the retail world in the last you know, at least 15 years where people don't do, you know, three and five year plans. They need results in a quarter or a year at best, right? So like, People change roles more frequently. There's a lot of turnover, especially in the executive leadership. And um, it's very hard to get them to focus on like a fundamental 
change project like this that is going to take, you know, many years and has to be built from the, the ground up. We just don't have that culture of, you know, um, we're going, we're in it for the long haul. I think that we did before. We just don't have time because the world's changing constantly. And that's not because people are different. It's because, my God, we changed our store operations, you know, five times in the last, you know, three and a half years with COVID. So nobody wants to get into a, a long-term thing right now. And I, I think that's something we really struggle with is, uh, it's easier to get these flashy quick hit, you know, bumps than it is to uh, uh, do some of that long-term stuff. So you just kind of have to work with the operations folks that will keep, you know, pushing it through. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like kind of online commerce. People, I think, felt, oh, we'll put up a website and we'll (laughs) be doing it. But actually, it's like a profound change in the way they do their business. And a lot of it requires infrastructure. And infrastructure is kind of the boring stuff. You have to have like a serialization system, change your core systems, join them up. So, you know, I really think um, what we've decided to do is try and focus people on the Internet of trillions of things, IoT2, because if you put a number on it, on one hand, you're kind of underselling it. But on the the other hand, it makes it specific. And I think uh, that we need to inspire a little bit of fear and greed. And I really genuinely believe that there's going to be companies disappearing and appearing based on mastering the art of this possibility and uh, mm-hmm. these new business models. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to ask you about some of these programs you touched on. On um, So maybe talk a bit more about the work you do with some of the vendors. And, uh, you know, if I'm bar- buying an RFID tag and I want to know what it can and can't do, how, how do you guys help with that? Okay. So, and, and this is passive UHF specifically yeah, because yeah. I, I had, one of the biggest problems with RFID is people confuse technologies. They confuse active, passive, all this stuff, and then and generally yes. they pick, you know, whatever they prefer um, in terms of the facts from each. But um, passive UHF is, is the world we live in right now because it's expanding so quickly. Last year, it was about 20 to 21 billion units were UHF tagged. This year, we're going over 30 um, I mean, where it's a 50% market growth and we're going to see probably that again, if not more of the falling, it's just nuts right now, the growth rate. So, um, what that means is that, um, there's two problems we have to solve. One is a, a quality manufacturing and this is paramount. This was the biggest challenge we were having with programs is that, uh, it's easy. I don't say easy. It's easier to make some passive UHF tags that will pass a, a performance test. You can put them on a box, you can put them on a bottle of water. They work great. It's very hard to make 100 million or a billion of those tags that perform the same, right? I can make a car in my garage, and it's an awesome supercar. I can't make 500 of them and sell them, right? So that type of, of thing. So we really focus on uh, uh, quality manufacturing on the on inlay manufacturers, and we have a QMS uh, program that we ask them to go through for, for that. But once they pass that, um, we do a, a kind of a criteria testing, and this was developed in, in conjunction with like NXP and and uh, uh, Impinge and some of the other chipset manufacturers back in the day. But the idea is uh, focusing on uh, how the performance of passive UHF tags on various different dielectrics, so everything from wood to plastic to rubber to cardstock to glass to whatever it may be, um, and then banking that information in kind of a library. We've been doing that since 07, 08. It's a huge library of performance data. And then that way when somebody comes to us and says, I have a project where I want to put 
RFID on oysters in the ocean, which literally we did recently. Um, so what does an oyster shell look like? Well, let me look in the library. Oh, maybe these tags will work. Or, you know, how do we put an RFID tag on a bag that's going, like a, a passenger bag that's going in the bay of a, of a jetliner? Oh, well, we look in here and see these things work well on cardstock, especially in this environment. So um, it's uh, the ARC program is that, that library performance. So it's, it's a focus on quality first because we don't want to tell anybody to use something that they can't actually buy that's going to continue to work. And then that focus on performance on the back end is a, uh, as uh, the, the physics of it, I guess, is the ARC program. So if I'm uh, getting in the tag, so who's um, submitting their product for this? Is this the uh, inlay assemblers or is it the tag converters? Uh, who's the customer? Oh, man, it's such a weird business. It's not just super clearly stratified because you'll have certain companies like like an Avery, right? So they make inlays, but then they also convert labels. Mm-hmm. But then you'll have like uh, a Tagios, which is a pure play inlay manufacturer, and then they sell to converters. Um, in the past, we had, you know, Alien, and they made chips and inlays, right? So it gets a little bit fuzzy. But um, typically, there's the chipset manufacturers, if you look at it as a pyramid, and there's a few of those. And then there's the inlay manufacturers, and there's a base layer of those. And then there's the label converters, which is the kind of the broader base, and then all of the products that get tagged down beneath that. So um, I think uh, for the ARC program, uh, the first level of approval or the quality certification is at the manufacturer, right? And that is a, like a company or a site-level certification. Like they know what they're doing. And then when it gets to the actual inlay models, uh, then we do uh, the ARC specs, which is a performance certification that is to a, a model of inlay. Um, so um, I guess it's at multiple levels or layers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So this is very operational. It's important work. Um, what about the the future and the research side of what you guys do. Um, and maybe before, I do want to get into maybe areas of research that you're either about to publish or your team's working on. Um, but, you know, what's your current assessment of where the market is? You've talked about huge growth. Mm-hmm. Where is the growth coming today? And then we can talk about where you think it's going to come from tomorrow. Oh, yeah. It, it's retail. I mean, just because the volumes are so high. So if you look at like retail apparel, so that 21 billion or so tags last year, about 20 billion went on retail apparel items. Before COVID, market estimates were about maybe 100 billion units of apparel globally. And we've worked with a lot of those uh, apparel manufacturers. And we know that once they get to about 35% of their stock, 
then they'll just flip over and tag everything. So we're at about 20 billion units right now. Once we hit 35 billion units, and I'm estimating that's probably gonna be in two to three years, then boom, the, the, that kicks on and that takes out the last you know 70% or so. So that'll flip over most of the, the retail apparel space. Um, and then um, we, this year, moving into kind of electronics and toys and sporting goods and all that stuff, and that's a whole nother area. And again, this is all passive UHF side. Mm-hmm. So um, the growth is healthy on passive UHF, but I think from a research perspective, we're very interested, less so in one particular RFID technology. We're more interested in the concept of serialized item data sharing. This is a big problem, right? Because we just don't have a way to do it effectively. It is is the weak link. You you look online about UHF RFID and you'll see all these papers and Wikipedia entries. Oh man, we're going to put tags on the factory. We're going to light up the whole supply chain and read it here and here and this port and this ship and this DC and all the way out to the store. We don't do any of that. We put a tag on at the factory and we read it at the store right before it goes home with the customer and we miss all that stuff in between. It's because we don't trust each other. It's because we don't allow each of those partners to continue with a serialized data ledger and send it from partner to partner through the global supply chain. It would be the world's worst game of technological telephone and it wouldn't work, right? We don't use the same units. We ship stuff by case level here. We do by pallet level there. We do by weight there, container here, then back down to the unit level. So um, uh, we use EDI, which is ancient. I mean, that stuff was from the days of modems. They still charge by the bit for some of that. Um, so ASN accuracy is horrible. Like there has been no major innovation or change in supply chain um, in decades and uh, we've got to get away from quantity level accounting and move down to unit level accounting. And that is going to require a huge overhaul in all of our inventory management systems and our data transition systems. And that is across technology. It doesn't matter if it's you know active RFID or passive RFID or QR codes or 2D data matrix. Do not care. If we're applying a serialized identity to each item, the future is how do we accurately push that data and then pull it back down so that we can trust each other when we're talking about the, the full supply chain. And, and that is kind of the, the, man, we got research there for decades. I mean, it's, that, that, that's a never ending process. And that's the, the ultimate goal, I think, uh, from us, from any of our academic projects as we push forward. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I was nodding so vigorously. I felt like I was, I was at a Led Zeppelin concert, headbanging, uh, <laughs> this, uh, uh, I feel like what's held us back is part of it is cost of infrastructure. And I think that's changing uh, rapidly. And obviously, Williot has an agenda there with Bluetooth and so forth. But I think more generally, it's what you just said. It's, it's data sharing or lack of it. Because if we're going to get transparency in supply chains, no one owns the whole supply chain, or very rarely. There's some vertically integrated retailers that do. But, you know, the mass of retail is wholesale, where goods are handed off to distributors and to retailers. And if we're going to solve climate change, it's about, it's, you know, let's make half of what we're making. Let's cut the waste and get visibility through that supply chain so that the maker of the product is not just seeing it when it rolls out of the shipping dock door they're getting continuous visibility of what's on the shelves and what's in the pantry of, of the consumers and the fridge and if we do that it can completely transform 
the world that we we, we live in uh, in terms of quality and waste and uh, business cost. models and mm-hmm. cost. we throw away yeah. we throw away almost a third of the food we ship that's ridiculous that's irresponsible like we shouldn't do that i mean it sounds common sense and nobody that makes it or sells it wants to either but like the fundamental problem we have is trust. We do not trust each other, especially in business partners. If you go to any retailer, they're going to have a whole floor that focuses on claims. If you go to any supplier and you ask them what they can do with serialized data, the first thing they always say is claims. There's just all this like Spider-Man pointing fingers at each other across the supply chain where, well, this didn't go there. It's your fault. It's that fault. I want to charge you this. I want to charge you that. We spend untold amounts of time and money and effort trying to figure out what did happen versus what was supposed to happen just because we don't trust each other and and anything that we can do to help increase that level of trust means that we can decrease the level of operational cost increase efficiency emissions and all that stuff goes away we don't have to make so much junk to sell the same amount we can get by with a lot less and still increase you know uh, sales and, and use of all the things we make wonderful so, Justin, you have a really interesting job. I think it's kind of an unusual one. Not many people do what you do. How did you get this job? I, you know, I always joke I've never had a real job. Um, I uh, went into uh, grad school, and I was a graduate assistant in uh, engineering, computer engineering. And uh, Dr. Hargrave at the time was a faculty member in information systems, and he was starting uh, the RFID lab. So he hired me on as his GA which he always told me, he's like, if you knew how, what a pain in the butt it would be to hire an engineering GA into the business college, he wouldn't have done uh, it. But, what, uh, what is a GA? Uh, uh, graduate assistant. Oh, so okay. um, yeah. I was doing my master's and he needed someone uh, to help him on the tech side because that was at the early phases. That was like 04 uh, when uh, RFID was just kicking off with uh, Walmart and others. So it was very funny because I was really naive. I was a grad assistant, you know, going to college. And I remember him saying, we went from a conference room to a basement, to a warehouse in six months. And I remember him saying, uh, hey, we need a, a manager for this lab. And I was like, oh, man, it sounds like a sweet job. I can't wait to see who's going to get this. And he's like, so we need someone that could run this daily day and get paid for it. And I'm like, oh, it sounds awesome. He's like, you want to do it? And I was like, ah, you know, so I, I, it blew my mind. I, I uh, got that job right out of the bat, um, was doing that while I was still getting my master's, and it just phew, took off from there. So I and what, started. What was your master's in? Computer engineering. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and he was business college, which was very helpful in terms of understanding like why we're doing what we're doing a lot of times. And um, from there it grew and um, eventually ended up here at Auburn. So all the students, whenever they're going out for job interviews and stuff, they'll ask me to look at the resume. I was like, don't ask me. I've never gone to a real job interview before. I'm, I'm, I'm never left the university. I'm, I'm Peter Pan. I'm never leaving. <laughs> so how did it evolve from a warehouse into what it is at the moment? Um, that's like 16 years, I guess, well, more longer. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how, how did that happen? I don't know. It was very funny because at the beginning, we used to tell people this is going to be a five-year lab, right? Because most academic labs, they kind of peter out after a while. Uh, but, you know, as you know, the journey to, you know, item-level identification is way longer than I think anybody really thought when we set out. So uh, um, we just needed it. I mean, it's just every time something would happen. So we started out with supply chain and then we shifted to retail store operations. And then after that, we got real heavy in aviation and now coming into food and pharmacy. So all these industries keep coming up and these problems keep popping up over and over again. So um, we just kept growing. Um, and then eventually, um, Dr. Hargrave became the dean of the business college and the provost at Auburn. We moved down here to join him. 
and then two weeks ago he became the president of the University of Memphis. But um, all right, I'm not, I'm not moving again. That's that's uh, too much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's too much for right now. Well, it's, uh, I think it's an amazing job. You get to do some really interesting work, and you have people coming to you. Um, um, what what do you think is is next? Is this um, is this a lifetime uh, commitment, or what? Uh, have, you, have you arrived, or is there something beyond this? A life sentence. So um, I think. Um I don't know. We don't want to be reactive. We want to be proactive, right? But uh, everybody's selling something at the end of the day, no matter where you work and what you do. And we're very lucky because I think the product that we sell is students, right? So we train the students and then they go out and get jobs and hopefully we help develop the industry that they go work in. So that's a never-ending process. And you can always get more and more students from more and more disciplines and grow more and more areas. So I think that... um, uh, space is the next big thing right now. Um, what's happening currently is uh, there's not a real supply chain up in orbit. You know, there's the ISS and there's here. So it's kind of a, a one-way trip up and back. Uh, but here in the next um, five years, uh, you got Axion putting up their private station. You've got other countries looking up and putting their own stations up there. We've got Gateway going around the moon, the logistics module that's going over there, the surface missions. We've got deep space logistics going to Mars and beyond. So we've had a lot of conversations with those folks about there are no real standards. Um, if you look at the IMS system, the inventory management system on the ISS, it's very, it looks like it's just kind of bolted together over time. So that's a whole new area to move out into, and that opens up a whole new avenue for uh, student education and things as well. And, and those things reflect well on what happens on Earth. It's hard to get, you know this, it's building confidence in what you're doing is sometimes difficult to explain to people. And you say, ah, but they use it on the space station or they, NASA does this or SpaceX does that. Then it gives it a little bit of cachet and it makes it easier for people to grasp onto and, and understand what's happening, I think. So, so it's fun. That is very exciting to hear. And there's been so many technologies that we use from, you know, the fundamental computing technology to nonstick bands and Velcro yeah. that have had their boost as a result of going into outer space. And I feel like... Uh, Auto ID, RFID is really on the ascendance now, but actually having something like that to shine a light on it and fire people's imagination could do a huge amount. Well, I, you know, Steve, I, let me ask you this then. Because the nice thing about Auburn is we have Huntsville up the road. So there's a lot. We're a space grant university, so we have a lot of connections to those programs. We're close to Atlanta. We're on the East Coast, which is where a lot of the retail operations are. We're in the Midwest where a lot of uh, supply chain operations and things are as well. But the idea, and one of the reasons I connected so well with you guys is a lot of people just look at this as we're trying to do this project for inventory accuracy here. We're doing that project for anti-counterfeiting there. But the goal is we want to serialize everything, right? So if we can apply a serialized identity to, to everything, to you know this bottle of water, to this jacket, to everything we can, um, that is, I guess, the long-term mission. And it's so rare, and we're so lucky to work in an industry where you say, hey, we have a finish line and it's going to take a long time to get there, but we got a goal, right? We have a specific target that we're trying to hit. It's not just, you know, sell more product and grow bigger over time. It is we're going to get to the point to where we're going to try to change everything with serialization. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know, but it's so helpful, I guess, probably, I don't know, what do you think, like as a company to have something to focus on? And it's hard to put a timeline on. 
but yeah. um, uh, it is. I, I, I agree. The, the, the having a, having a mission is uh, <laughs> from the Kennedy uh, uh, inspire. You know, the ultimate mission statement: uh, man on the moon and return safely. That was the thing that propelled everything. It was stated quite simply, but it had a profound impact. I, I, I mean, what you touch on is super interesting to me because I think about what we're doing and at one level, it's pretty mundane. We're kind of associating a number with a thing and we've got these stickers that help to do that. But at another level, we are bringing a digital universe into conjunction with a physical universe where we're seeing these the world of the internet of cloud computing of cyber uh, coinciding with everyday things and i think you know the internet's going to get a lot bigger pretty quickly it's already mm-hmm. big but in my mind it's going to get 100 times bigger in the next 10 years the internet will be uh, two orders of magnitude bigger than it is because suddenly everyday things clothing, food containers, packaging, all these things that are offline are going to be online and it's going to change everything. Businesses Mm -hmm. will disappear. New ones will appear. Uh, Safety will increase, food safety, drug safety, uh, it'll impact the environment. I mean, I think it's just absolutely massive. And we get so hunkered down in, oh, read rates and uh, uh, GS1 serial GTINs and uh, it's kind of not particularly interesting, but the the overall impact on people's lives, um, uh, the quality of their lives, uh, is profound. Uh, and you know, if you think at how potent the internet is, and the internet's only connected with a tiny percentage of the things that exist, what if we went from maybe you know a few percentage of the things that are connected to Half the things were connected. You know, mm-hmm. that's going to really make a big difference. And I don't think people realize that. Oh, I, not to get too philosophical, right? But as people, we live in this fog of approximation at all times. I mean, I've been doing this kind of thought experiment when I meet new people and say, let me chat with you. Steve, how many pairs of shoes do you own? I, I, I don't know. Right. You see, nobody knows. I had one lady answer me one time. And she knew exactly because she had just done an inventory. And you ask people and they say, I don't know. You ask people like, uh, how many things do you own that cost more than $2,000? And a lot of people will sit there and they'll really think about it. And they'll think, I should probably know that, but I don't, right? So we just wander around like with things all around us. And we kind of know what we got, but... How many times have I really gone out there and bought a 916th socket set from the hardware store and I have three other in a drawer but just forgot about them or couldn't find them? I'm like, all this stuff that is all around us and we have no idea what it is or where it is. It is just like this, we just bumble our way through as people sometimes and things seem to just kind of appear around us. But I think uh, we're moving to a world of, as you say, we're connecting with that digital world. But I think we're moving to an era of specificity. So there's not going to be all of this just guesswork and approximation and, and what do I think I have. Uh, I don't know how that's going to change things, but I can guarantee you it's going to change things significantly. I don't have, I want to have near as much crap in my house in the future. If I knew a real-time inventory of what I have, what my neighbors have, um, there may be ways to share things between each other that we didn't normally before. And I'm not talking about living in each other's houses, but hell, 
if I got a leaf blower, my neighbor needs it, maybe they can use it, things like that. Even within family, I think that it's going to be a, a huge change in the way that we uh, view the world and things around us if we have the ability to tangibly identify them. We're terrible at counting. People are awful at it. And we shouldn't have to spend a lot of time doing it. I mean, I can take a room full of PhDs and pass a box of 232 pencils around the room, and I'm going to get 10 different answers. Because you start counting, and then your mind focuses on more important things than sitting there and dun, 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 all the way down through. So I think we're learning how to use the world around us, or, or the web as you put it, to uh, start offloading some of the information and knowledge that would help us in daily lives, rather than just relying on some type of very poor inventory system that we have self-created over, over time. I'm so excited to hear you talk along these lines because I, I absolutely agree. But I want to get back to you as an individual. And we have this tradition of asking all our guests for three songs that make a, a difference. Is, uh, do you listen to a lot of music? Is music an important part of what you do or is it sort of background? It does. It's, I mean, it used to be a lot more important when I was younger. And as you get older and have kids, you know, it just it, you fade in and out, right? You get in the world of podcasts as we are today and things. Uh, there's more information at your fingertips. But yeah, yeah, it's always been important. And so what would your three songs be? Well, uh, first one I would pick would be, uh, uh, and I'm sure everybody says this, Otis Redding always wins, especially me being near and from Memphis, right? So uh, You Don't Miss Your Water um, is probably the best song he ever recorded. It was from Otis Blue. It was recorded in Memphis at Stax. It was Booker T and the MGs as the backing band. Um, That is probably the best album ever made in Memphis Definitely the best album of the 60s. Probably one of the best albums ever made. Uh, but uh, uh, Otis Redding is, is definitely the top of the stack. And, and being kind of a, a local hometown hero, too, that, that all works in, in your favor. This is the first time Otis Redding has come up. I feel a little <laughs> embarrassed to I, confess that. We get a lot of David really? Bowie. And we really? We get a lot of Queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Fantastic. Different crowds. I don't know. I guess yeah. it depends on where you're from. But I feel I like... Think so. uh, I, yeah, think I, so. I feel like if you ask 10 people around here, at least uh, five of them are going to come up with Otis Redding somewhere. So, Of course. Great first choice. What's number two? Number two, um, I picked this because I've been listening to it every Friday. Uh, the Agro Lights, Free Time. It's a song that they made in a, a 2000, late 2000s at some point. Uh, Agro Lights were a band out of L.A., uh, it's kind of a reggae thing, but uh, I'm telling you, for a Friday afternoon, getting off work, it is the best uh, a song you can <laughs> you can listen to. That is a getting ready for the weekend, getting out of here for the day uh, of music. All right. I feel like my horizons have just got expanded a bit. And, and then what's number three? Number three, this is not one of my favorite songs, but you said songs that had an impact. Um, and this is a little embarrassing that I didn't know this, but Elvis – you got to pick something from Elvis. I'm from near Memphis. So uh, Suspicious Minds, right? So um, that is the most overplayed Elvis song you'll ever hear. But it's funny because uh, you think you meet fanatical Elvis fans somewhere, but when you are around Memphis, my Lord, they take it to another level. And especially growing up in the 80s and 90s, I did not know that was an Elvis song for the longest time because every band up and down Beale Street would play that as a cover song every time you went somewhere. So I assumed it was some local band had made that. And it wasn't until I got in my 20s and I realized, oh, wait, that is actually Elvis that made that to begin with. So it is, 
it, at least it was in the 90s, that was the sound of, of the Mid-South in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. So not my favorite, but in terms of importance, I've probably heard that song more than anything in my life besides Frozen, because my daughter listens to that nonstop as well. But <laughs> anyway, well, I'm glad you dropped that in as well. I mean, Elvis the King. It's incredible how he went from you know this the heart of America to around the world and to like to England. And I've been thinking a lot about the Beatles because that um, you know the documentary came out the nine hours or whatever it was of uh, of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of making Let It Be and. They a bunch of them have told stories of their first time that they visited Elvis, and you, you take the Beatles, who are like the, the pinnacle of musical significance, and then you realize that they were tongue-tied and awed in the presence of Elvis, and what a huge impact he had on uh, on them. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. You know, it's weird that you say that too, because. There was always a little bit of a competition between Elvis and Beatles here, right? For hearts and mm-hmm. minds, right? I mean, he even talked about it in Pulp Fiction. He says there's two kinds of people. There's Beatles people and there's Elvis people, right? So which one are you? And it kind of felt like that you had to choose. Now you don't have to so much anymore, but it really felt like you had to pick a team back in the day. So uh, uh-huh. uh, Beatles, I remember when first listening to those, and um, it didn't get played a lot locally on the radio. So I didn't really know much about them until you know early college. And... Uh, it's it's good, but I, I I can't ever get off Team Elvis, man. I can't. So, so Steve, you've been asking these questions for all these people for all these podcasts. What's one of yours? You had to name oh. three, but like, what's one? Have you oh, ever done this goodness. before? I, I, I do it in, all the time because this is really just the, what I ask is a homage. It's a tribute to um, Desert Island Discs, which is the longest running radio show in the world. Uh, by the BBC and they ask their guests for eight records and I'm constantly like resourcing what would be in and what would be out. Um, for me, it's got to be Dave Brubeck, uh, take five. Um, so that, I mean, uh, maybe that's an album uh, and a song, but I'd probably go for Unsquare Dance that has this amazing musical signature. And uh, for me, it's got s- s- very poignant. It's something that my parents love to listen. My dad passed away uh, uh, due to COVID. And uh, so, so that's sort of, uh, he, he loved it. My mom loved it. So that, that was something. And then, um, you know, when I left home and I went to college, I started doing a radio show um, at the college I was at. First, I was kind of very felt at sea, uh, didn't, couldn't connect with the people around me. And then I found the college radio station and I started doing a show and I started to meet kindred spirits, all these weird people with different musical tastes. And uh, I ended up running the radio station. So it was my first management job right. um, doing technology and artistic things. So so I would say D- Dave Brubeck, uh, uh, Unsquare Dance. Is, so what, is my what was your hometown? Ah, uh, well, I was born in San Francisco, but my dad loved England and he married a, a Brit. So I grew up in England and uh, I grew up, uh, I started off in uh, Coventry, which was in the Midlands. It's an industrial, dark, cold, uh, wet place. Uh, but right. then we moved down to London, which is a little warmer and there's got a little bit more going on. Uh, so I, I kind of consider myself as a Londoner, uh, but I, I, I love America as well. I love the the fact that it's got it's it's the anyone can be president uh, literally anyone can be president <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know that 
no, no regard. To, I mean, there is some barriers, but this kind of ideal of um, uh, do what you do, what inspires you, and no glass ceilings. And uh, when I grew up in England, there was a class structure, and uh, you know, you didn't you didn't want to kind of get ahead of yourself. And I just love America's creative entrepreneurialism, and uh, and that's. Uh, and also the weather's better. So <laughs> in San Diego, you can't beat it. Well, Coventry, that was where was that round where like uh Plant and Bonham were from? Didn't they come down from there to, to London whenever? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, Led Led Zeppelin. Um they uh that's that's where they were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good that you can pick something that you shared with your parents. You know, that's uh it's good yeah. that you can because so many times, you know, you pick music that your parents would never listen to just because they wouldn't. But uh it's good to be able to maintain that that connection as well. Well, Justin, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we should uh, grab a, a whiskey or a beer or something <laughs> at this point. But uh, I guess we've both got work to do. So I really appreciate you joining us for the show. Hey, thank you, man. This is one of my favorite uh, interviews I've done in, in, a, in a long time. It's rare that we get to talk to people that live it and get it, right? So uh, uh, thank you for, for the time and for inviting me. Well, look forward to hopefully uh, you coming to San Diego and visiting us so uh, we can continue the conversation then. Very good. I hope you enjoyed this conversation a fraction of what I did. It was great talking to Justin. It's great talking to someone who's really smart, who's really plugged in. Thank you very much for spending time with us. And do uh, join us next time when we're uh, telling you what's uh, what we see happening, at least, in this weird and wonderful IoT auto ID universe that we operate in. Be safe, be well, be happy. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along, and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.